what's better in life than a bottle of wine, great food, and an amazing conversation? My name is Kate Sullivan, and I am the host of To Dine For. I'm a journalist, a foodie, a traveler with an appetite for the stories of people who are hungry for more. Dreamers, visionaries, artists, those who hustle hard in the direction they love. I travel with them to their favorite restaurant to hear how they did it. This show is a toast to them and their American dream. Thank you to the sponsors of To Dine For The Podcast, American National and Spiritless. To Dine For The Podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. For 115 years, American National has remained committed to helping people and communities make a real difference in their lives. American National supports great local community organizations led by the kind of people you hear about on To Dine For, people who are inspired to make a difference and inspire others in return. American National's philosophy is helping where it's needed helps us all. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write, and the states in which they're licensed, visit americannational.com dine. Spiritless supports the conscientious cocktailer who wants to live fully but drink differently. Their signature Kentucky 74 is a distilled non-alcoholic spirit for your favorite bourbon cocktails. It's zero alcohol zero guilt, and just 15 calories per serving. Whether you go completely spiritless or go halvesies with a foolproof bourbon to lower the ABV in your cocktail, you can get your bottle today at spiritless.com. Use promo code TODINEFOR to get free shipping. Welcome to To Dine For The Podcast, where we meet the world's most innovative and creative minds at their favorite restaurant. On today's episode is Natalie Guo, creator of Off Their Plate. I only saw the opportunity to help. I didn't criticize the idea. I didn't think about, well, what if this didn't become 280 people at some point? I didn't start with that ambition. I started simply with the idea that if I can help one person, that's a pretty good thing for me for that day. Natalie Guo was born in China, raised in Sweden, and now calls Boston home. She is currently a medical student at Harvard Medical School, and at the beginning of the pandemic, she saw firsthand how devastating the toll on first-line healthcare workers really was. So she had an idea. With so many restaurant workers out of work and so many healthcare workers needing warm meals, why not bring the two together? In less than 48 hours, her idea was born. Off Their Plate is a nonprofit organization that employs restaurants to cook meals and deliver them to hospitals and urgent care centers. That idea is now in cities all over the country, harnessing more than 220 volunteer workers. The concept has now morphed into helping natural disasters and other areas in need, just like we're seeing in Texas. Natalie explains how the idea came to be and how it is fueling her own vision for her career and what can be learned from her story to help anyone else creating something out of nothing? Please enjoy my interview with Natalie Guo. Natalie, thanks so much for joining me on To Dine For The Podcast. It's wonderful to see you. It's so nice to be on. I wish we could be at a restaurant together. Oh, wouldn't that be amazing? So tell me, where are you coming from and where would you take me in terms of your favorite restaurant? Good question. Um, where would I go? So I, I'm typically based in Boston, but I actually grew up in a little university town called Uppsala in Sweden. Mm. 
if I could, and actually the benefit of being in COVID is that we can imagine any place on the planet. Um, yes. I take you to this Middle Eastern restaurant um, called Hala, where I grew up. It's a place that my parents and I used to go to. Nothing fancy. It's a Middle Eastern kebab restaurant. And we would get the same thing every time we went there. And that was sort of the main place we went to for seven years that I lived in Sweden. Okay, so let me get this straight. You would take me to a Middle Eastern restaurant in Sweden, and you were yeah. from China. That's right. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I, well, the premise of To Dine For is that someone's favorite restaurant begins to tell their story. And so I have a feeling you've just kind of wet our appetite for to find out more about you. So tell us a little bit about growing up in China and how you got to Sweden. Yeah, I um, I was born in, in China uh, in the very south with deep food culture. I think that's sort of at the heart of, of my story is how important food is in our community. And um, my parents went to Sweden to be graduate students. They're both scientists. Mm. And I came with them shortly thereafter around the age of four. And I grew up in a town called Uppsala where it's, it's very unique because it's a university town. And so despite Sweden being quite homogenous, you know, a lot of Swedish blondes and, mm -hmm. and blue eyes, um, there were actually quite a few international students mm -hmm. and families there. But as a result, there were sort of one or two from every country. Mm -hmm. And it was this perfect little melting pot that I think set the stage for us to move to the United States, which is the ultimate melting pot, I think, of countries. And what I always say is that I was, I was raised... I was born in a communist country and I was raised in a socialist country. And then I came to the U.S., which is a capitalist country. And I think I am a really good blend of all mm. three of those ideologies and mm. how they help and hurt in different scenarios. Well, I, I can't wait to dive into Off Their Plate and how it came to be. But can you tell me a little bit about your career and your background leading up to that point? Sure, sure. I, I grew up dreaming of being a scientist, and I think human health and disease have always been my calling. In college, uh, when I was studying to be a scientist, I started to see a lot of structural difficulties through global health and understanding that when great science happens at the bench side, it doesn't always reach everyone mm -hmm. equitably. And I think mm -hmm. during this pandemic, we are seeing that in, in folds. Mm -hmm. And that actually led me to be really curious about who makes decisions in this world. Who are the decision makers who um, build the systems that determine which vaccines reach which people? Mm. You know, because I had never really understood the capital system before, I thought it was important to be educated on that side. And so I actually went to New York and I worked in the business world, in healthcare, but in the finance world for many years, and then got my MBA at Harvard before coming back to um, what I think is the root of what I do, which is improve the health of people. And I'm now in medical school. Okay, wow. All right, so you're in medical school. Off Their Plate has nothing to do with medical school, yet it does in, in, a, in, a, in an incredible way. Please explain the concept of Off Their Plate, which is really brilliant. So Off Their Plate is a nonprofit that I think sort of started overnight last year. We work with local kitchens that are led by women or people of color. And we help them transform their communities in a time of crisis through providing meals, but also through providing employment for their staff. So did this start because of the pandemic? 
It did. The story of great entrepreneurs is about identifying a problem and then finding a solution in, an, in its most basic form. And I feel like when COVID hit, you had all of these restaurants who wanted to keep their workers employed. They are worth, you know, doing everything they could to keep their restaurants afloat. Meanwhile, you had all of these healthcare workers in hospitals around the country who were working around the clock because they had to, and they needed to eat. And so off their plate in many cities takes the food that would have gone to people dining out and sends them to the hospital, correct? And then allows healthcare workers to get a warm, delicious meal. That's right. That's right. It was, it was, you know, I was on the surgical rotation at Mass General Hospital and the chief of surgery pulled us in that day. And he said, in my five decades in medicine, I've never seen anything like this. Mm. And he said, we're preparing for what may be some of the worst times that we've ever seen. And just taking us back, I mean, it was so uncertain at the time, right? COVID has been horrible. And I think people had visions that it would be 10 times as horrible or 10 times better, or we yep. just didn't know. Right. That uncertainty brings so much fear. And taking us back to that time, you know, hospitals were shutting down cafeterias. Meanwhile, all the places where you would usually get a meal around a hospital were also forced to shut down. Mm -hmm. And so hospitals became these sort of food deserts in the cities where COVID was really hitting. At the same time, we were asking nurses, hospital staff, people who had families at home to subject themselves to the virus mm -hmm. at the hospital. They would they couldn't really grocery shop because that was subjecting the community to that risk. Right. And then they had to feed their kids at home. There was right. just so much burden being piled on a select group of people. And this whole thing wouldn't have worked without this the third piece, which is people who were at home who wanted to help. Mm. That's the whole reason my author plate worked, is that there were people who were working professional jobs who had a stable income, and they said, I want to help restaurants, I want to help restaurant workers, and I want to help the hospital workers who are risking their lives for us. So where did you, you have this idea, where do you begin? It, it, on paper, it sounds very simple and sounds really well aligned, but the logistics of making it happen, where did you begin, Natalie? Yeah, the first thing was, you know, this, this was an idea that sort of popped in my head over breakfast. You know, I was uh -huh. listening to a podcast <laughs> about, about the millions of restaurant workers whose livelihoods were on the line. And mm. to many of us, shutting restaurants is an inconvenience. Oh, we can't eat out, something that right. we love. For millions of people, it is the way they feed their families. Yes. And so when I heard that, you know, I thought about this, this situation, whether we could, we could, you know, build this pipeline from donors to restaurant workers to hospitals. But, and I think this is where my business education comes in. I couldn't go and execute that without hearing from the community about whether that was needed. Mm -hmm. And so the first thing I did was I reached out to restaurateurs, mm -hmm. chefs in the community to see if this was actually something that would help them. Mm -hmm. And also to reach out to hospital workers to, to hear whether that is something that they actually needed or it was an additional nuisance. Because the last thing you want to do is build something that people don't need. And, and, and the answer, I imagine, was a resounding yes on both fronts. That's right. We had we had two um, chefs sign on for the pilot overnight. You know, I and this was in Boston. This is in Boston. Okay. What I did was, uh, you know, I, I come from a business background, so I think in Excel and I think in email. And I sent about ten emails out to chefs in the community who had been uh, very outspoken about how worried they were about their staff during the okay. pandemic. Great. So not just their business, yes, but people who said, "I have seven people on staff." who do not qualify for unemployment. I don't know what to do about them. And so I reached out to those people. 
And then I teed up an email to friends and family who I thought would be moved by the call. Mm. And my husband, who um, was very supportive and set up a PayPal account to pool donations together, he's sort of become the unofficial back office of off their plate. <laughs> he uh, set this up and I, I drafted an email, sent it out. And within maybe 24 hours, we had raised $50,000. Wow. And I was stressed because I think taking that sort of money. I wanted to be responsible and I wanted to do right by every donor. Mm -hmm. And so I said to myself, $50,000 is sufficient to run a pretty good pilot. So that's what this week will be. And what, who were the two first two chefs that said yes in Boston? Tracy Chang of a restaurant called Pagu and Ken Oranger of Little Donkey. Fantastic. They were wonderful. We hopped on the phone. We structured an economic arrangement that would really work for our mission together and it was really built with Tracy and Ken's teams in mind, which was one, we would identify the most vulnerable workers in their kitchen who most likely weren't going to qualify for unemployment. So it's a widely known fact that 20% of America's restaurants are supported by workers who struggle to be registered and documented. We set this $10 per meal price that includes $5 that directly goes to staff that are vulnerable. So that's not typically the economic structure of a meal price at a restaurant right. but in these in these you know critical times we wanted to support the worker as much as we could and we set up pilots with um, with Brigham and Women's Hospital mm -hmm. in Boston the emergency department where the nurses and staff were um, testing and treating covid patients and three days later we served 90 meals to the emergency department and within a month I think we had raised maybe two million dollars. Within a month. And it just snowballed from there. Um, and we're lucky because I think I think something really struck donors about what we do, sort of tackling the two sides of this problem. And what we say is that, you know, every dollar to off their plate really touches two communities. And and I, that's something that we've learned from other nonprofits is that empowering people through work is in many ways um, more holistic than just direct aid. We'll have more on this conversation in just a minute. But first, thank you to our sponsors. To Dine For the podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. There's a funny thing about most insurance commercials, whether they feature lizards or birds or funny cartoon characters. It seems like they want you to think about anything but insurance. American National, on the other hand, has real local agents who get to know you so they can help you reach better decisions about your insurance to make sure you're protecting what matters most to you. American National Agents are part of your community. They're your neighbors. So whether it's solutions for your home, your small business, your farm, or your life, you can count on your local American National Agent to make sure you get the discounts you deserve and the protection you need without paying for extras you don't. With American National, you get an ally, not just a web page. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write in the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com dine. If you're like me, there are times when you want to feel like you're having a fancy cocktail, but you don't actually want the alcohol. So I love Kentucky 74 from Spiritless. It's a distilled, non-alcoholic spirit for your favorite bourbon cocktails, but with just 15 calories per serving and none of the guilt. You can pre-order your bottle today at spiritless.com. Use the promo code to dine for to get free shipping. Now back to our conversation. So $10 a meal, $5 goes to the restaurant, 5 goes directly to the workers, correct? Yes. 
You started in Boston. Where are you now? We're, um, we expanded to nine cities. And so New York and San Francisco, Seattle, Los Angeles, Chicago, Pittsburgh, and Philadelphia. Um, and we're constantly getting requests to be in other cities. We're actually currently in D- Dallas as well because of the recent outages. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I love about our organization is we're quite nimble. And so Dallas ha- you know, unfolded over the course of two, three days. I'm actually in Dallas right now unfolded over the course of two, three days. And we were able to um, partner with a women's shelter that takes in women who are domestic abuse victims and feed them hot meals all week. As hospitals started to see a turning tide in the first wave of COVID, we started seeing a ton of food insecurity in the community. And um, we asked ourselves, is this our place? And what's amazing about our organization is that we're small enough, meaning you know, food insecurity is a trillion dollar problem. And the restaurant industry is a multi-billion dollar problem. We're a drop in that bucket. Mm -hmm. But because of that, we can be nimble. We can be flexible. We can respond to more urgent needs. And when we saw the hospitals were doing better, we started to pivot to serving the food insecurity that was out in the community. And that was welcomed by hospitals. And so we've been doing that for the last half year, serving shelters and people who are in line for hot meals. And it's been sort of a second calling for us. Natalie, are you still in medical school? How are you managing doing the off their plate and still being in medical school? I am, I am. Um, it's one thing that's sort of unique about our organization. We're not super open about it, but we're a hundred percent volunteer run. Mm-hmm. And our mission are, is to actually become a new model of civic engagement for our generation, where professionals and creatives and engineers have day jobs and their careers, but give 10% of their time or more or less to a cause they care about. And it can be mm-hmm. off their plate or it can be another organization. Mm-hmm. We, we are an organization top down where every single person is bringing their skills and lending their skills, not just a donation of time or a financial donation, but really our skills and our network to doing this together. And you know that's that's why we, we ended up raising $8 million last year and the, re- the reason is because of this group of people, you know, bringing their networks, their firms, their professional contacts who all want to do the work together. How many volunteers are we talking? We were at about 280 in 2020. So 200, you, you grew this from last March to 280 volunteers That's and right. you were all volunteer run. Yes. And it allows 100% of donations to us. Um, to go only to the cause. So, you know, I, I at one point, I almost called this podcast a fork in the road because I really felt like every great story of innovation is about something that happens that causes you to take a fork in the road. And here you are, right, in medical school, the pandemic hits, you're eating breakfast, and all of a sudden this idea hits you and you act on it. And you act on it in such a way that in 24 hours, it's not an idea, it's actually action. What has this meant to you personally to go on this journey? It's funny you say that because I, um, when I first had this idea, I looked to my husband and I, I started talking and chattering about it. And that fork in the road really did appear. I could do nothing. And this could be an idea that I you know, talked to my husband about, or I could do it mm. and just see. And I think that interestingly, because it's not, in a space that I have a lot of experience, I only saw the opportunity to help. I didn't criticize the idea. I didn't think about, well, what if this didn't become 
280 people at some point. I didn't start with that ambition. I started simply with the idea that if I can help one person, that's a pretty good thing for me for that day. Mm. Some people would look at that as naive. Mm-hmm. And you know, you didn't know what you didn't know. But I often think sometimes that's a superpower because that allows you to and propels you forward. Your 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 really benevolence is leading you forward. And then you're kind of like, I'll figure it out along the way, right? A hundred percent agree with that. I think that at every step we ask ourselves, are we helping people? And our goal is to do that. Our goal goal is not to become the largest organization. It's not to become the most famous organization in the space. It is to do good work. Mm -hmm. And as long as we're impacting a community, a place, that's good for us. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, that fork in the road, I think people being more naive sometimes can be helpful in that way. Obviously, you have to get educated through the process and learn about the communities and from the communities. Um, But I think not telling yourself no in some ways, I'm really curious to find out what was the hardest part since you walked into something where you didn't know a lot about how to tackle it. What was the most difficult part of the past year? Did you have a hard time getting the funding? Was it getting into the hospitals? It doesn't sound like talking to the chefs or getting them on board was difficult. So what was the pain point? There were sort of two um, two types of, of challenges. The first challenge, which I think you're talking about, is sort of the business building and um, logistical challenges that came up. And one, one example of one is I started out scheduling every meal in Boston, and it would take me six to seven hours just to schedule a thousand meals because between the hospitals and the restaurant schedules and which shift and contact person, it's actually quite a lift to kind of perfectly match that. With the amount of funding we had raised, we came up to a point where we had to serve 10,000 meals in that week. And so seven hours to schedule 1,000 meals, 10,000 was going to be a bit of a challenge for this person. And you're in medical school. I keep saying that. But you've got an entirely different job on your plate, right? You talk about having a lot on your plate, right? And so... Um, And so, you know, one way to tackle this problem was to bring more people on, which we did, but it's actually an algorithmic problem. And so an engineer was brought into the team named Andrew, who works at a tech company in his day job, who built an algorithm over the course of several days that ended up scheduling 40,000 meals in Boston in less than three seconds. Amazing. Incredible. And so tackling logistical challenges in business building has been all about bringing the right people in to lend those skills at that time to take us to that next level. The other types of problems that have been difficult are more identity related and critically looking at our work and evaluating that. And I see as my role at the head of the organization to internalize all the criticism that I could foresee, not because there's a PR angle, not because I'm worried about that, but because those critical perspectives will help us do our work better. And so one example is, you know, the idea of empowering people through work that inherently has a built-in capitalist undertone to it, Mm -hmm. that we empower people through work and that people find worth and dignity in their work. Mm -hmm. And when I hear that, and I've heard that in conversations with incredible people in, in the aid industry, I don't say, wow, that's counter to our work, or we can't have a capitalist tone, but it informs how I think about our work, that consciously in a time of crisis, when people are struggling to feed their families, that is something I'm willing to take on. Mm. 
And but but it's important to kind of to to hear those perspectives. And so the challenges around identity, mission, and whether we're doing our work in the most conscious way possible. Those are some of the bigger, I think, challenges that people don't often talk about. I think entrepreneurs typically have to be out there saying, you know, it's so clear what my mission is. It's so clear what my role in the world is. And that can't waver. But in fact, it should waver. Mm. The world changes. And the experts and the communities that you help and for, you know, for others who are not building a nonprofit, for the customers you serve, they're changing. Not enough people talk about what you just said. I think it's such an important point. You know, everyone talks about finding your why and having um, a steely focus on on your purpose, but there has to be room for that purpose to morph, right, and to grow and to become something bigger than you can imagine. A year ago, you were in medical school with this idea. How has the past year shaped what you want to do with your life and your career? It's such a, what you just said was, was so on the nose because when we decide what we want to be, we are young by definition, we are before the person that we are becoming. Mm. And so the process of us walking the path of becoming should influence who we think we will be one day. Mm -hmm. I mean, it would be crazy to say that us at 70 is exactly the person we laid out at 15, right? you know, or even at 30. Um, I turned 30 in the pandemic. I'm one of those. (laughs) Happy birthday. (laughs) I'm one of those. Um, It's funny. I haven't had a chance to think about myself much Mm. in the last year. This year, I can imagine. My gosh, (laughs) seven hours for feeding a thousand people and you're doing (laughs) spreadsheets left and right and trying to keep up on your studies. You're really amazing. And I mean, it's with tremendous help from the other 280 people. I haven't had much time to think about myself, but I have been transformed by the process of off their plate. It is a core part of who I am and how I spend my time and how you spend your time is who you are. Mm -hmm. Health advocacy is a critical component of um, social justice. And I, I see myself bringing health access to more and more people over time. And I think believing in the ability of organizations and teams to do that. Medicine historically, you know, the physician is, is at the operating table and medicine thankfully has expanded their idea of teams, I think in, in sort of these care settings, but off their plate has helped me see what 200 people loosely, loosely connected strangers, really only connected by our work can do for a population. And that's really moving me right now. And so if you had to, if you asked me, you know, in 10 years, would I be in a doctor's office or would I be working in this way with an organization? I would say the latter. Hmm. You know, we, I, I asked you about the pain points and what has been so difficult and of this organization that you've created you seemingly overnight. I think it's also worthy of note what's been so easy, right? You know, the fact that you were able to mobilize people so quickly. And I feel like that's so inspiring for people who have an idea, whether it's in this space of nonprofits or otherwise. So often things become more difficult in our mind than they actually are. And it's through action, like with you, that think that the path almost appears. I I really, yeah, that really resonates with me. I think I used to be in in a business capacity, I used to be someone who would evaluate companies. And one significant thing that I learned was that it's much easier to say no than it is to say yes. And Mm. teaching ourselves, you know, we, I think we're, we're born people who say yes, children say yes. Mm -hmm. 
And it's part of that, you know, that naive element you were talking about. Mm -hmm. And then something happens along the way with education. I think Mark Twain says like, don't let schooling get in the way of education. I have way too much schooling on me. Um, But education where you learn to say no, and you learn Mm -hmm. to say no in 18 different ways to yourself, to others. And I think my goal is for more and more people to occupy that yes space again, Mm -hmm. to say yes to yourself, to say yes to your ideas, to share them with others and put them in interaction with other people's thinking. Because if you don't put it out there in the world, no one knows you're thinking it. Mm -hmm. If you don't put it out into the world and, and, and really execute on it, people can't react to it. Right. And it's okay if your idea isn't perfect because the world will help it get better Mm. just by virtue of other people saying yes to you. And that's something I think this year has really showed. I mean, this year off their plate is a very small drop in the bucket of just the civic engagement that has emerged in the last year. 2020 has given us so many movements to carry on into the future. And it's, it's really with people who I think I can only imagine now from my seat that one person said, Hey, this could matter. And then a million other people said, actually, that does matter to me. Mm. Thanks for saying that. Mm. Let's do something together. Yeah, what you've done with Off Their Plate is almost a microcosm of so many other movements and efforts. And it's really putting your finger on the pulse of how so many, especially young people, are thinking right now about the future in many different disciplines, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, our organization of... 200 some people, food justice is the space that we have chosen to work together on. But there are numerous other problems that we are also very passionate about. And we hope that others build organizations around them in the same way. Mm. And in fact, many are, many are around the world who are doing this and not just in the US, but all around the world. You called it off their plate. And you're someone who has a lot on your plate. Uh, Why did you call it off their plate? Off their plate was meant to really speak to the three parties who are here. You know, the donor community that's at home, taking something off the plate of two communities who are out there at the front lines for us. Mm -hmm. And I think without the off their plate component, you can't make it work. You know, Mm -hmm. the restaurant workers are struggling on their own and the hospital workers are on the front lines risking their lives because that's their livelihood also. Mm And off their plate really has this communal feeling of let me help you mm-hmm. take something off your plate so you can do it for someone else as well. There's a pay it forward element. And when I, it's funny, I mean, I, I don't know that I used to use this term very much, but within off their plate, we are constantly asking to take things off the plate of other people on our mm-hmm. team. Can I take that off your plate? Can I help you there? And I think this attitude of help propagating through the community is just a really nice feeling in a global pandemic. Natalie, it's been such a joy to talk to you today and hear a little bit about Off Their Plate. Uh, your story is incredible. Uh, the organization, how can, pe- how can we support you and how can we find out more about Off Their Plate? Visit us on our website, offtheirplate.org, and um, you can either donate or join us with your skills. Fantastic. Enjoy your day and thank you so much for joining me. Nice to meet you, Kate. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to To Dine For The Podcast. For more information on the show, the guests, and the podcast, head to todinefortv.com. You can find us on Instagram at todinefortv and Facebook at todinefor with Kate Sullivan. Thanks to the sponsors of todinefor the podcast, American National and Spiritless. Special thank you to producer and sound editor John Golner. To the loyal followers of this program, cheers, stay hungry, and stay inspired. I'll see you back at the table soon.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.